Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Thank you, Ben. That was amazing. It's, um, this will sound self-serving as the worship director of this church, but you guys need to know that regardless of who's up here, that they've put a lot of work, a lot of preparation, both spiritual and musical, I guess. And the fact that we've been on like a year plus streak of every single weekend, just massively powerful worship through music is a rare thing. Okay, guys, it's a rare thing. Please do not take it for granted. And don't do it for my, don't do it for my ego. Okay, do it for yourself, seriously. Do it for yourself. Careful, Barbara. I know exactly where you are at all times. Just, just because Cody's a little taller than you does not, does not spare you tonight. So how, how are we doing tonight? Did you guys enjoy James chapter 1 last, last week? Chris, I thought that was such an amazing job. I know you kind of took the easy way out and only did like seven verses out of the whole chapter. But, but, there, but in, to your, to your, um, in your defense, um, Chris wanted to spend like the whole night on the first verse. So he really did an amazing job getting all the way out of the first verse on that. <laughs> on that. Um, and honestly, you know, I learned something less. I learned a lot of stuff last weekend, but I actually didn't know that his real name was Jacob. I've been in church since, like, the day I was born, and I did not know that. So that was really cool. And I love that um, you were actually going to, that generational thing, theme is going to continue. We're actually going to talk about Abraham. Remember, he mentioned several times the connection with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're going to actually spend some time later in the message talking about Abraham tonight, which is really cool that that generational theme sorts, uh, sort of continues. But um, I love doing series like this because um, I, I think our teaching team does an amazing job, no matter what the topic is, of just diving into the text and embracing tension. Because this whole book is, this is just a giant book of tension. It's just a giant book of tension. If you read it for two sentences, I promise, you'll find some. But when we have a, a series like this, it just takes it another, to another level of brutal honesty of just being like, okay, we're going to do our best to go verse by verse through this. We're not going to skip anything. And no matter what it says, we just have to deal with it. So um, I'm not going to ask for your permission. I'm just going to do it. We're going to do James chapter 2, the whole thing. Okay, and if the first half doesn't necessarily mesh with the second half, just pretend like I'm preaching two messages tonight instead of one. And if there's any clunkiness at all, it's my fault, not the text. It's my fault, not the Holy Spirit. It's my fault, not the author of this book. Okay, are we ready? James chapter 2, verse 1. This first message I'm preaching tonight is called The Sin of Partiality which I'm sure nobody has ever, ever, ever struggled with. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, 
And you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let's stop there for a second. Chris mentioned this last weekend that James is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel. So this little scenario that he paints for us probably kind of just, you probably just, I've glossed over it a million times. I think James chapter 2 is easy to skip over because you start into chapter 2 and you're like, I I mean, the first four verses, that doesn't really apply to me. But in that time, in that culture, in that context, this type of scenario has probably played out many times. And the people that James was writing to probably saw this happen often. So get over yourself in 2021 America, Midwest, okay? There's something here for us. I promise you there is. But I want, before we leave first century Judaism, I want to look at this phrase, sit down at my feet. What would be the cultural implications of that? There are two, in Jewish culture, there were two relationships where that type of arrangement or that type of behavior would be commonplace or even expected. The first was a rabbi-teacher or a teacher-student relationship, okay? The students would sit at the feet of the rabbi and they would learn. And this is actually basically what we do in school today, right? That usually the students will sit at desks and the teacher will stand in the front. No big deal. Also, really nothing negative about that at all. So that's not what James is talking about. The second relationship is the master-servant relationship or the master-slave relationship. Yep, start to cringe. This was one of the most degrading things you could say to somebody. By telling a poor person to sit down at your feet, you would be telling them, I own you. I own you. Now, you're still probably drawing a blank, right? Because if somebody came up to you at church tonight and said, I own you, you would be like, hey, buddy, are you okay? (laughs) Need me to pray for you? (laughs) Right? Because we don't have this. We all have our own houses and our own cars and our own families and our own lives and our own jobs. We just have so much freedom and independence here. But you have to try to put yourself into the context of a first century Near Eastern society where debt slavery and master-servant or master-slave relationships were commonplace. And you're still probably drawing a blank because it's like, okay, that's great, Phil, but like, we don't really have that here. And you're right, we don't. And I struggled with this as I prepared because I said, God, I know James is writing this to speak to his specific audience in that time. But this is not the only type of partiality that exists, right? There's got to be some other forms of partiality that we struggle with today. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't really have bothered to put this in here. God, what, what else is there for us? And instantly, the Holy Spirit asked me a question. And so, in obedience, I ask you this question. Have you ever, 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 valued someone's opinion or friendship based on their financial success, their social standing, or their spiritual influence? 
Have you ever valued someone's opinion or their friendship based on who else they are friends with? Nobody in here, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. You see, so why does that matter? Well, guys, if, you're, if you call this church your home, you have decided, or maybe God decided for you. We can have that theological discussion some other time. God has placed many of his voices for your life right here in this church, in the form of your friends and family in this church. This is what you're signing up for, whether you're in this church or any other church, okay? Now, have you decided to ignore one of those voices? Not because of what they said, but because you didn't like the voice, that particular choice, that person, right? You definitely needed to hear what they had to say, but you didn't like the person that said it. And so, you just, you kind of, you say, hey, thank you, or maybe not at all. Maybe just ignore it, right? Somebody delivers some truth, an encouraging word, a prophetic word that would change everything for you if you genuinely received it and genuinely acted on it, but you ignore it. And then maybe by the grace of God, a few weeks later, a few months later, a few years later, a more preferable person shares the exact same truth with you, and all of a sudden, God is no longer silent. All of a sudden, your prayer is finally answered. God speaks through whom he speaks, and he is not interested whatsoever in your preferences for his prophecy. He speaks through whom he speaks, and he is not interested in your preferences for his prophecy. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying you need to listen to everyone and do everything that everyone tells you to do, because that will be a disaster too. What I am saying is you need to I don't know, listen carefully. Test against Scripture. Ask the Holy Spirit for clarity. Okay, these are common sense things, or they should be common sense things for us. You see, if you're humble enough, you can learn something, even a little thing, from anybody. No matter how uneducated they are, no matter how successful they are, no matter if they, if they have anything in common with you at all, if you're humble enough, you can engage with somebody genuinely and you can learn something, even a little thing from anybody, even a child, most often children, right? We've got to be humble. Now, it's good to have close friends, trusted friends that know you well, and the, the words from those people should carry more weight than other people. They should, because they know you well. Okay? Full transparency. I have the privilege of serving on the leadership team of this church. I helped found this church. The other members of the leadership team are the best friends I've ever had in my life. because they know me, not because they can say they're also on the leadership team. Therefore, they have some special extra spiritual juice that the rest of you don't have. 
not because they have successful businesses, not because they may make a lot of money, not because they have all of this leadership experience, not because they're good preachers, not because they're good worship leaders, not because some of them are on staff. It has nothing to do with any of that. It is because at a minimum, I have spent seven years laboring with some of them alongside them in the Lord, some of them in multiple ministries over 10 plus years, laboring and laboring and laboring alongside them so they know me and I know them and their words carry weight. The words of my parents carry much weight because for 32 plus years, they've been involved in my life that carries much weight. But when someone outside your top eight comes with you for something, with something, you had better be humble enough to at least keep this in the back of your mind. You know what? This person just might be trying to obey a prompting from the Holy Spirit, and I better not be standing in the way of their obedience. In fact, I need to worry about my own obedience and listen carefully. I need to be asking God, especially if it's somebody that's close to you that you don't like to listen to right now, someone that knows you really well, that you've decided to ignore for a little while. You need to start asking God, hey, when, oh man, I don't want this conversation to even start right now. But God, listen, I need your help right now. I, I, what would you have me receive from this conversation? I don't want to talk to this person right now. I haven't wanted to talk to this person for 20 years, and I, and I just... I just need your help. What should I receive from this conversation? Hey, God, by the way, I need your help. I need to, I need to repent right now of ignoring your voice and to have, having negative thoughts about this person and not trusting this person and ignoring this person because they know me really, really well. They love me, and they're trying their best to help me, and I've been ignoring you by ignoring them. Has anybody struggled with the sin of partiality yet? keep going. James 2, 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Only wealthy people can afford to sue you. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You see, the poor in the world are often rich in faith because they have to be. They don't have too many other options. Wealthy people can easily lean on their own resources. But be careful. Be careful here. We've got to read the text. What does it say? What does it not say? The text does not say only the poor people get to heaven because you will find some churches that will tell you that. No wealthy people here, no good stuff here, no blessings of God here. Yes, Jesus did say to the rich ruler, sell everything you have and follow me, but it wasn't about his money. Jesus knew that, that his money had his heart. If his money did not have his heart, Jesus wouldn't have had to tell him to sell everything. He would have just said, follow me. And that man could have invested in the church. He could have built... Who knows how many churches with all the money that he had, but Jesus knew that he wasn't going to do that. The kingdom of God is promised to those who love him, right? That's what it says in verse 5. 
which he has promised to those who love him, rich and poor. All James is saying is it's more difficult for the wealthy people to get into heaven because it's more difficult for them to lay down their lives and put their faith in something instead of their money, instead of their investments, instead of their strength. Let's keep going. James 2, 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Jesus, uh, he's quoting his brother Jesus' words here from Matthew 22. This is so cool. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What? For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy. no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, he's quoting his brother's words from Matthew 18. Okay. There's a whole message right there, but we've got a, the, when I read through that passage, law of liberty just leapt off the page. That's why it's capitalized, because that doesn't make any sense, right? Now, r- nowadays, it makes no sense. Law of liberty, that's backwards. You guys, we are no longer slaves to sin, amen? Okay. We aren't immune to sin, so God gave us this book to help us develop disciplines around every aspect of our lives so that we could live in freedom. So this phrase, law of liberty, is really, it's such a cool turn of phrase, isn't it? Because it's this book of rules, if you want to call it that, is actually not a law book at all. It's a roadmap. It's, It's a user's manual to freedom. Um, you can go ahead. And, there's a picture I want to put up on the screen. You can go ahead and put that up there. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, ignore this disaster right here for a second. Have you ever looked at an outlet before? Yeah, okay. I know this is kind of a dumb question, but here, here in the U.S., we have these three-prong outlets, which means they're designed for a two- or three-prong Power cord, also of specific design. Um, should really use three. Much safer. Um, now, is, anybody, is everybody okay with me stating the obvious there? Okay. But see, now, in, in our current environment, I, there's probably a lot of people that would say that's, you know, it's pretty outdated of you to say that. It's very narrow-minded of you to say that. And I would say, of course, in America, you are, are, you are entitled to your opinion. But that doesn't change the fact that if you plug anything else in that outlet except for something designed to go into that outlet, you're going to trip a breaker on a good day and fry yourself on a bad day. Right? Now, this person that actually did this... Um, yeah, no, this is not me. Um, so I won't bother trying to explain with electrically what's going on here. Just know that it's a really bad idea. But this is a per- I saw this the other day on Instagram, and I thought it was just a perfect picture of what we're trying to do now. 
Okay, in 2021, because you see, there, there, there used to be only two genders, but now, now there's, we need more. And so we have to like try to change some things and we've got to, we've got to um, accommodate things and we have these preferences that have to be accommodated for. And there used to be only, we used to only think that these people were oppressed over here, but now there's actually all these other people that are oppressed over here. And so we have to sort of accommodate every, we have to accommodate this and accommodate this. And, and these preferences actually start functioning like laws because all of a sudden people start getting thrown in jail because of it. And, and people start having their careers permanently ruined because of it. And I keep hearing something is systemically wrong. And I would one billion percent agree. There's no Jesus. We've forgotten how to love each other. We've forgotten how to how the universe was designed to function. We stopped reading the user's manual for freedom. That's why everybody's upset. We're overloading the circuits. That's why everybody's upset. We got no power left. That's why everybody's upset. Oh, the Bible's old and outdated, and there's all these rules, and I don't want any of that. I just want I just want to be free. <laughs> and isn't that funny? Have you ever looked at the actual text of some of these modern enlightened laws? How many pages there are? The Affordable Health Care Act. Oh, man. <laughs> the Affordable Health Care Act, in the, its original form that was first voted on, I, I saw a range of numbers of pages. Okay. The smallest number I found was 2,300 pages for one law. Okay. Using standard 8.5 by 11 copy paper, that's a little over 9 inches. That's probably about 9 inches. Of paper. That's one law. Now think about how many laws we've got at the federal level, you know, and the state level, and the and the local level, <laughs> right? And and but this is too much. That's too much. That's too hard to understand. 2,300 pages for health care. Are you kidding me? But this is too hard to understand. This is too outdated. This is too restrictive. This is too oppressive. You got no hope of following that mess. We got enough paper to stretch to the moon and back. You think anybody understands it? But this is too hard. I, I just don't see it. It doesn't add up to me. Sure as heck better not add up to you. But the way of a fool seems right in his own eyes. Guys, the law is there to prove this, this easy one. <laughs> it's here to prove that you can't possibly hope to fulfill it. And when you can't, it also points you directly at Jesus who can and did fulfill it. So he died on the cross for your sins so that the legal claims against you can be completely removed so that you can then assume your place as a son or daughter of God in authority over the very powers of darkness that are seeking to destroy you and confuse you and think that that, that this mess is somehow freedom.
So I would just say as I wrap up my first message, (laughs) search your heart for partiality because you just might be ignoring the voice of God because you don't like the source God's choosing right now. And that's dangerous. And I don't mean it in this, in this in a condemning way. I mean this in the most loving way possible. The voice of God carries the law of liberty. Is anybody up for liberty? That's the sin of partiality. Now, faith without works is dead. Okay. Now James really pulls out the haymakers, okay? So be careful. Let's go to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, James, you have faith and I have works. And James would say, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good for you. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you shudder in God's presence? The demons have to shudder in fear. You get to shudder in triumph and wonder. Do you? Do you have any idea who we're dealing with here? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that, apart, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, James, I just will not pull punches tonight. The text says, you can, you can say you have faith, but if your faith doesn't actually lead to any actions at all based on that faith, is it really faith? You can go to any random stranger on the street, and, they, and you, it will not take you more than 10 minutes, in a big city especially, to find somebody that would say, oh, yeah, I believe in God, I, or I believe in some sort of higher power, whatever, you know, politically correct. Okay, well, but if that's genuinely the case, don't you think that that should, like, lead you to do something, like, anything at all about it, Right? So you can say whatever you want. That doesn't mean anything. Even the demons believe. James is saying, hey, you believe that God is one. Hey, good for you. You believe in the Trinity. Fantastic. Even the demons believe that. All right? And shudder. What does that really mean? The demons know, they, they believe. And they know exactly who they're dealing with. The enemy, see, this is what the enemy will do in a nutshell. At a very high level, all of his strategies go back to this one central thing because this is what he did to Adam and Eve. The enemy is going to do his absolute best to convince you that God isn't fully who he says he is, right, Heidi? Isn't fully, isn't going to do fully what he promised to do. Why would he do that? Because if you live your life Whenever, even in just moment at a time, whenever you choose to live your life in light of the fact that God is who he says he is and will do all that he has promised to do, the enemy loses and he knows that. Let's keep going. James 2. 
21 through 26. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, this passage is often used by some in the church to argue for a works-based salvation. Um, so I'm compelled to address this tonight. I'm not skipping over that. Hey, um, if you're not quite sure what I mean by works-based salvation, um, like, yes, you have to believe, but you also have to do, like, enough good things to get into heaven. A works-based salvation theology would also state that you can actually lose your salvation if you do enough bad things, or maybe just one really, really, really bad thing. There's a bajillion problems with that line of thinking, not the least of which is you have to somehow come up with a ranking system, and God doesn't have one of those, you know, and so, so we've got humans deciding, well, this sin is bad enough for you to lose your salvation if you do it one time, and this one's too, you know, it's, it's not in here. I can, can confidently tell you that. But this is maybe one of the most popular passages to kind of support a works-based salvation, unless you actually read it. Let's first look at this word justified, because it's, it it's used three times. The text says Abraham or Rahab, they were justified by their works. Well, the word justified, I always kind of, I don't know why, but I think a lot of people, they hear the word justified and they kind of think saved. I know I used to. It's not what it means. Justified means proven true. Okay. So stay with me here. Let's go back and read Genesis 22. So I'm actually, we're going to cover another entire chapter in Genesis 22. That's when Abraham had to sacrifice his son Isaac. And this part of the message is maybe only just for me. So, you know, bear with me while I only preach to myself real quick. I always thought that faith worked this way. Big acts of faith required like like a really big act of faith, like sacrificing your son, would require like an Olympic-sized swimming pool of faith that I built up over like 50 years and saved it for this one singular moment, and then I would dump this whole swimming pool of faith into that one short little moment. And, and when you believe that, you're always going to think that you're not a faithful person. You're always going to think that I'm not, I, don't, I'm not, I don't have much faith. I, that mustard seed, I don't, I don't even have a mustard seed. I've got, I don't even have a molecule. You know, you're always going to, th- if you think faith works that way, that you've got to fill up this giant tank for these giant singular acts of faith, you're always going to think you don't have enough. Well, who told you that? God didn't tell you that. The, this doesn't tell you that. The enemy told you that. Okay. This was not one singular momentary act of faith by Abraham. It was a lot more than one. You see, he actually had to get up out of his tent and leave. 
And then he took, he had to gather some servants. He took multiple servants with him. He took multiple fully loaded pack animals with him. He invested a lot of time and money, actually, in this three-day journey to his son's death. The son of the promise. Okay? He had Ishmael before, but that wasn't, that was outside God's plan. God had already told him, this one, this Isaac, this is the promise. There's not going to be another one. It's this one. And then God told him, now you need to go sacrifice him, actually kill him on an altar. Abraham left, the text says he left early the next morning, right away. Not the next day, not the next month, not the next year. He didn't wait until the person he wanted to tell him to leave told him to leave. Hello? Right away right away. Now, it's about 45 miles from Beersheba, where he was camped, to Mount Moriah, where God told him to take Isaac. Now, if you go in a relatively straight line, that's 45 miles, and the average person takes 2,000 steps in a mile, so that's a minimum of 90,000 steps. More than likely, he took over 100,000, so we'll just call it 100,000. Well, that's 100,000 steps of faith, isn't it? Right? Because at any point during those 100,000 steps, he could have been like, ah, I, I don't have it. I don't have it. I'm going home. I, can't, I trusted you this far, God, but I just can't, and I'm going home. I'm going home. So you would probably, if you operate under this idea that I have to have an Olympic-sized swimming pool of faith to sacrifice my son, then of course you would look at somebody like Abraham and say, well, man, I mean, he, he raised the knife. He definitely had that swimming pool of faith. Surely that's enough, you know, good works and faith stored up to be saved, right? Works-based salvation, right? Well, but you got to look at the order of things that happened. It says in James chapter 2 and verse, 22, or verse 23 that the Scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteous. Okay, you have to go find that verse in Genesis. It's Genesis 15, 6. It says it right here. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Seven chapters later, actually, let me, before I say that, really quick. Um, when you're counted as, who, how, many, how many are righteous? Not even one. Paul says it in Romans. This text says the Lord counted him as righteous. If Jesus is the only one that's righteous and Abraham's counted as righteous, Abraham was saved in this moment. Let me, let me rephrase it for you. Abraham was saved here in Genesis 15, 6. Seven chapters later, the sacrifice of Isaac. Saved first and then believed first and then acted and worked out his faith based on that decision seven chapters earlier. Okay, so this, those that would say this passage in James proves a works-based salvation, either stop at verse 22 or read too fast through verse 23, because Abraham believed and it was counted as righteousness. Rahab also believed and it was counted, she believed and then acted, right? The, the spies showed up, they told her what was going on, she believed, she received that information, she believed them, and then she acted upon it. She hid them and sent them out another way and, dis- and sent the guards out a different way, and the Israelites came in and conquered the city. 
and now she is permanently listed in the genealogy of Jesus. The Bible says elsewhere, believe and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe and you will be saved. We must let the Bible interpret itself. Don't make it too complicated. Don't read stuff into the text that isn't there. And we can use the same sort of logic with the person of Jesus. So let me ask you this really tough question. Was Jesus the Son of God before, during, or after like the miracles and the messages and the death and the resurrection? Was he the son of God in the manger? See, our our belief in Jesus has zero effect on his identity. Whether you believe or not, it doesn't change his identity. Any more than your belief in gravity changes how gravity works, right? Jesus has always been the Son of God. Before he did any works on earth as a man, he was the Son of God. Matthew 24, 5 says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will lead many astray. It's really easy to say you have faith. It's really easy to say you're the Son of God. Many people throughout history did it. But there's only one man that happened to back it up. If you remember from a few messages ago, I preached... He backed it up to the tune of fulfilling 131 prophecies just from the book of Isaiah alone, and we've proven, 100% proven, that they were written down, all 131 of them, at least 100 years before Jesus was born. The case is closed. There's no more discussion. There's just no more discussion. The works proved his identity, justified, proven true. The works proved his identity. They did not make his identity. His works proved beyond any doubt what was already true before he did any of it. And the same is true for you. Believe and you will be saved. Now it's time to act. As we close out tonight, as we are, this, now is when we are going are gonna to respond And I'm going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag what the final song is. I didn't tell the band this, but I'm the worship director and I'm preaching tonight. So the final song is The Father's House, and it's one of our favorite songs at this church. And um, it's a huge celebration. And so while I do want this time to be a time of quiet for you. And if you need to come forward, you just come forward. You can come forward right now. It's fine. There's several groups of people that need to respond. Maybe maybe you've never believed. Well, now is the time to believe. Or maybe you believed and you just really haven't done anything with it. Well, now is the time to repent of that and to then start doing something, anything. (laughs) And you're probably concerned, well, what am I supposed to do and what are my giftings? And I would just say, All you need to do is start speaking to God. That's all you need to do. 
is speak to God. It's time to act. You see, I don't know, I don't know how much faith Abraham had when he was sitting in the tent. He might have had a mustard seed. He might have been super holy and already had a swimming pool. I don't know. But when I read the text, here's what I do know. He did have enough faith to get up that day early. He did have enough faith to leave and take it one step at a time. Each step, this is, this is so important, you guys. Each step built on the faith of the last one. That's all. Each step built on the faith of the last one. A hundred, until after a hundred thousand steps of faith, it had become very easy for Abraham to just say yes to God one more time. So habitual, it was a habit to just trust God one moment at a time, such that without hesitation, Abraham raised the knife. Because a hundred thousand moments before that, he had decided to say yes. It had become normal, so normal, to trust him from one moment to the next that he, he that whole journey, walking, he, this was going through his mind. I'm just one step closer to provision. One more step. Is there a ram? Nope. Okay. Is there a ram? Nope. Okay. Is there a ram? Nope. Okay. 100,000 times. He just kept believing. He knew because God had told him, this son, Isaac, this one is the promise. No ram yet? Okay. Okay, Isaac, get on the altar. I love you. No ram yet? Okay. There's the ram. Hebrews eleven nineteen says... That Abraham reasoned that even if, even if I do kill my son, God's going to raise him back to life. He has to because he promised that this son, Isaac, not some other son, I'm not going to kill this one and get another one. He said that this was the one. So even if I kill him, he's going to bring him back. He has to he, he, because I believe that this God who chose me out of nowhere I believe he is who he says he is, and I believe he will do everything that he has promised to do. And so there's, there's no shame here tonight. There's no shame in this room. There's only the presence of God in this room. There's only the love of God in this room. There's only the redemption of God in this room. There should be no, there should be no sadness. There should be no sadness. We leave the shame at the door. That's what the song says. Right now is a perfect opportunity for you to confidently and triumphantly Lay down your life. Turn to Jesus and never look back. Confidently and triumphantly lay down your life. Turn to Jesus and never look back. Let's pray. Jesus, you 
see every single one of your children in this room right now. You see your children listening on this podcast 10 years from now by God's grace. And there's people in this room right now that desperately need you, that need to repent of the sin of partiality. They need to repent of ignoring your voice by ignoring the people that know them, some of them that know them the best, that have been, that we're just trying to obey. God, help us to obey. Change our hearts, God. God, there's other people in this room that they believe. They really believe. But if they were really honest, brutally honest, they would say they're really scared to act. You're such a big God. You're such a powerful God. And you say amazing things in this book, but you say really tough things in this book too. And it's scary to say yes to a God who just might love you that much and just might require that much of you and just might require us to love people as much as we can the way that he does. And that's scary sometimes. So we cast out fear in the name of Jesus. We cast out that fear. And we turn to you. And there are people in this room right now that you have drawn to yourself. You're drawing to yourself in this moment. And it's time for them to respond to that calling. And if that's you listening on the podcast or here in this room, it's very, very simple. You just need to tell them. You, don't need, you can say it out loud if you want to. You say it in your heart. doesn't matter. But what you do need is to tell the God of the universe, I'm sorry. I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you're going to do everything you promised to do. I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die in my place so that I could be called your son, that I could be called your daughter, that I could live in freedom from sin and experience an abundant life. God, change my heart right now. I turn to you. That's what repentance means. I turn to you, and I'm just going to do my best to follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn and continue to walk. And there are those in this room that already believe, and they just need to, we just need to act. So whether it's out of fear like we've already cast out, or whether it's out of doubt, or just being uncertain as to what direction you're supposed to walk, let me just, let, let's just clear that up right now. God, give those people the boldness to just ask you for help. God, help me. I believe, help me in my unbelief. I believe, help me in my doubt. I believe, help me in my uncertainty. God, I'm not sure what my gifts are. I'm not sure what my purpose here is. Don't worry about that. Just ask him. He's going to tell you. 
He is desperate for his children to speak to him as their father, and he's desperate to show them what he has in store. So if that is you, ask him boldly, I just need your help. Show me which way to go. And you know what he's going to say? Trust me. Just follow me. Just follow me. Just follow me. And I promise you, the clarity you're searching for, the certainty you're searching for, will come. It probably will not be in the way that you expect it. It probably won't even be in the way that you want it. But it will come. God, give us faith to take one more step, one more moment with you. In Jesus' name, amen.